This coverage is live and uncensored. So if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's going on, guys? My Take Radio episode 140 for Thursday, May 24th, 2012. The intro music you just heard was Fight as One from Bad City. You can hear that on the Avengers animated series. You can also find it on iTunes and in the Amazon MP3 marketplace. The call-in number is 347-324-3541. Again, that call-in number 347-324-3541. If you want to hit our feedback line, that's 347-815-0687, 347-815-0MTR. All right, lots to get into. Of course, MTR was off this week, well, was off last week, and I am going to get into that. Um, during our absence, Slick has managed to keep things running behind the scenes. We've been trying to keep the site as updated as much as possible. Definitely got to thank Blade and Quark for making sure that they got their buried content out to keep some stuff fresh. Um, ben is also working on some stuff, as is DK. Slick has a ton of stuff in in, in the pocket that he's going to drop on you guys over the next few days. So it, it's, it's a return to normalcy for us and um, feels good. I am definitely a little rusty. I haven't really been doing much audio work the last few days. I did record a new my Take Radio Behind the Mic with Stephanie Daniels from Tap Out Radio. You should be expecting that sometime this weekend. That'll be exclusive on the MTR app. After a couple of weeks, it'll be exclusive. Well, the exclusivity will end, and it'll be released to everybody, including Stitcher subscribers. So be on the lookout for that. And um, hopefully we should have that live and posted by Saturday. Also, we're trying to get a tighter schedule of getting the MTR episodes updated and cleaned up. If you subscribe to My Take Radio TV on iTunes, you'll see that MTR episodes are being posted on iTunes as well. Just another way to get the show out there to a new audience. We're also starting to do more video stuff. The uh, capture card is in the building, and we're going to be doing some stuff with that. Just like I said, we haven't had the opportunity to really play around with a lot of stuff because last week was a bit difficult. As you heard, you know, and you've been keeping uh, up to it on the fan page. We recently got acknowledged by Libsyn for a podcast luminary award. Um, well, a luminary spotlight. So props to Libsyn for looking out and giving people um, a little bit more insight into what we're all about. So you can check that out. The link is on the fan page. Um, of course, we've been on What's Hot on Stitcher, which was something I really wanted to talk about last week. So 
we're getting there. We're, we're reaching a lot of great people. A lot, of, a lot of people are listening. The numbers just keep getting better. So we appreciate all the support, and I figured I would acknowledge that. Now, um, get glue check-in still in effect, even though, like I said, they fucked us over with no stickers. You guys know the deal. We were supposed to have new t-shirts launching last week with last week's episode. Uh, things, just like I said, got thrown in flux. Shit is completely fucked up, so we got to kind of go back to the drawing board with a couple of things. Um, a quick reminder, the week of June 4th, uh, actually June 5th, 6th, and 7th, there I will pretty much be AWOL covering Blog World, but uh, maybe we'll try and have something pre-recorded that'll go up. If not, you'll be able to catch MTR Live the following week, which would be June 14th, so... Make a note of that in your calendars for that stuff. But we'll be putting up content from Blog World, interviews, pictures, all that crazy shit. So we'll be taking care of that as well. Who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll have Slick do MTR live that Thursday. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll take a gamble, put the, put the controls in Slick's hands and see if he can run with the ball that week. Who knows? I didn't tell him that prior to saying it on air, but, um, <laughs> you know, I figured I would say that. You never know. I see De Silva's up to his old tricks in the chat room. Little does he know is that I can see that what he wrote from the corner of my eye. Him being a great uh, supporter of the show. I figured I'd let his little comment slide this week. But um, nonetheless, let's get into what's going on. We got to talk over the limit. WWE Raw. We got TNA news. We got UFC news. We got Strike Force stuff. We got video game news. What the fuck movie news. It's it's just a, a a plethora of shit this week, especially because we're so behind. Um, the opening monologue pretty much is, I just want to let you guys know what went down last week. Uh, last Tuesday, my mother-in-law, uh, Andrea's mom, passed away and um, very suddenly. And pretty much the entire week was being a support system for, for my wife and doing what I had to do for her family and, you know, just... It, as you guys know, I, I talk about my mom often, huge influence in who I am as an individual, how I conduct business, everything. So it, I kind of have experience in this shit, and it's fucked up. And sadly, she joins the club, so she knows what the deal is. And it, it was just, it was probably one of the, the second toughest week of my life uh, in the last 12 years. Doing the show... All this other stuff, definitely not um, not stressful. Trying to be there for somebody and empathize with their loss, especially if they're experiencing the same thing you experienced, is very, very difficult. Because regardless of how experienced you are in the shit, you can't help but feel powerless. Simple as that. But, you know, my, my mother-in-law, she was, she was awesome. I, I'd call her my second mother straight up. Uh, super supportive of everything we did, everything we were doing. Um, you know, we ordered our wedding bands with her uh, two weeks prior, a week or two prior. So really, really fucked up. And I'll be honest, I haven't shed a tear in a long time. And I'm not saying it because it's a sign of masculinity or being a badass or whatever. I just, it, I don't want to say it's because I'm heartless or soulless, even though sometimes I've, I've contemplated that. But it's just that... Nothing has ever reached inside and put the, and plucked your heartstrings like, like something like that. And 
don't get me wrong, you know, she had she had bagpipes for the mass and they played Amazing Grace and I fucking I fucking shed tears like a motherfucker. I have no problem admitting that. Anybody that says that, you know, men shouldn't cry and all this shit are just using that as a blanket for their insecurities. Facts are facts and that was probably, like I said, one of the toughest weeks. And, you know, we're resuming normal operations. A lot of people off air who I know came through and, you know, those people I've thanked individually, uh, our staff, they've, you know, they've handled stuff behind the scenes. People that I know that I've never met shared their condolences. And to those people, thank you very much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's going to take some time. Shit, like I said, is a little in flux, just trying to get back on the grind, but we'll get there. If you've noticed, Andrea started posting some stuff. I've been trying to get back in the mix. So we're going to clear this hurdle and try and give you guys the best we can give you every week. Simple as that. So with that said, we got some MMA this week that we got to discuss. There's a couple of things going on. Of course, we got UFC 146 this weekend. Uh, no, not 146, 148. 148, I think. Whatever the case may be. It's heavyweights. They're beating the fuck out of each other. And that's this weekend. So let's talk some MMA. Pretty soon we're going to have to retire that intro music again because the last episode of The Ultimate Fighter, the finale, is next week, June 1st. Uh, we got one more episode left this week, but last week we had two fights. We had a twofer. We had uh, Vink Pichel from Team Cruz taking on Chris Saunders from Team Faber. Uh, definitely a, a very back-and-forth fight. I felt um, it could have gone either way. First round, super close. Second round, uh, Pichel was definitely the aggressor. He ended up taking the fight via majority decision. And on the lightweights, Ali Akinta from New York, got a root for my New York boys, Team Faber, taking on Andy Ogle. Ali Akinta secured himself a one-way trip to the finals with his TKO with an elbow on Andy Ogle. It was ridiculous. Very, very very aggressive performance by Iakinta. I think these guys are going to start turning it up now that they're getting into the final weeks leading up to the finale. So super impressed, especially elbow was vicious. And pretty much the elbow came off a separation, which was insane. You know, there was a bit of a scramble. And as soon as they separated, boom, that elbow connected and it was lights out. Um, very, very, very impressive. He got his, his ticket into the semifinals. And it's, it's like I said, it's going to be bananas. And June 1st, we got a lot of great fights for that. Like I said, this ultimate, this season of the Ultimate Fighter for me has been, and I've expressed this numerous times, missing something. So take it for what it's worth. I'm excited to see the finale. Um, I've been super behind on Tough Brazil. So make sure to check that out online. See what's going on there. Those guys know, know exactly how to give you great television Language barrier be damned. Uh, the Ultimate Fighter Brazil is fucking awesome. Simple as that. Let's jump into the other event that happened this past weekend, and that was the Strike Force World uh, World Grand Prix Heavyweight Tournament Final. Uh, Josh Barnett, the babyface assassin, aka the War Master, taking on Daniel Cormier. Also, the lightweight championship fight between Gilbert Melendez and Josh Thompson. We also had Fei Zhao and Mike Kyle as well. Now. 
the funny thing about this card is a lot of people weren't really, really giving this card the respect it deserves because for some reason, you know, Strike Force is the redheaded stepchild of Zufa, so people just don't give a fuck about them anymore, which is unfortunate. You know, they had a couple of really solid cards, and even now under the Zufa banner, there's still been there there have still been some great fights. But you know, going into the Grand Prix main card, Nashawn Burrell, Chris Spang, uh, very very awesome performance. Chris Spang secured himself a victory with TKO with knees. It was super vicious. Uh, Nashawn Burrell collapsed in a heap. When he started eating those knees, it was it was insane. But super, super, super aggressive. Great performance. Uh, Chris Spang making a statement in the welterweight division. Uh, Fei Zhao and Mike Kyle. I expected that to be a, a slugfest. Definitely a, a nice back and forth fight. Fei Zhao was not trying to get paid by the hour. He came in there, secured himself a beautiful guillotine submission in 33 seconds in the first round to hand Mike Kyle the loss. Very, very, very impressive performance by Fei Zhao. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if Zufa maybe waits one or two more fights and finds and finds a way to pluck Fei Zhao out of Strike Force and drop him into the UFC. I think uh, that submission he secured was definitely one that will go in his highlight reel and definitely probably well probably got him noticed. Simple as that. Lightweight championship bouts: El Nino, Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson. Went the full five rounds. Now, a lot of people felt that Gilbert kind of got, ex- not exposed, but definitely wasn't shown, didn't get to show off his skills as the quote-unquote best light heavy, well, best lightweight that's not in the UFC. On the contrary, I think Thompson looked really good. You know, Melendez looked good in the early goings, but Thompson definitely started weathering the storm and looking better in the championship rounds. Gilbert Melendez Took the victory via split decision. It's been debated. I've talked to a couple of different guys that go, you know, Josh Thompson should have won that fight. He got fucking played. Some people are saying, you know, El Nino kind of got too comfortable in his own hype and figured that he'd be able to walk through Thompson. And Thompson came in there and he was ready to bang it out. And then, of course, you got the fickle fans that are saying, you know, you got a guy who's not even in the top 10 for lightweights coming in there and putting it on a guy who's supposed to be the best lightweight, not in the UFC definitely an exposure for El Nino. I think that, in my opinion, everybody has a has a bad fight. Some fights, more often than others, are not super stellar performances. El Nino went in there, he handled his business, he took the split decision. The guy went in there, he fought, he fought smart. He knew how to engage and when to engage, but he wasn't expecting Thompson to come out and handle it the way he did. Thompson caught him almost in a rear naked choke in the fourth round, and there was also some really great exchanges in the fifth. So, very, very, very impressed. Now, moving into the heavyweight Grand Prix final, Daniel Cormier, Josh Barnett. I couldn't root against either one of these guys. I couldn't even do a fight pick when people were asking me. I like Josh Barnett. He's a phenomenal athlete, a great ambassador for catch wrestling. Uh, one of the guys that when you see him do pro wrestling, you can see that transitioning into MMA only because his style of pro wrestling isn't the, you know, punch kick, punch kick, WWE style. His is the Japanese strong style. You see a lot of catch wrestling, some really great submissions, really, really vicious attacks from him. Even though that's a, that's a scripted environment, the transition from that environment to MMA for him is just seamless. He knows how to work the mic well and sell a fight. 
Cormier is coming up. Guy's 9-0 and right now. Well, 10-0 and after this. And he's he's going to be a force. I think if he comes into the UFC, I, I'd recommend giving him maybe one, one or two fights and giving him an opportunity to challenge for the belt. The guy went through the Grand Prix. He's beaten a couple of guys that are in the UFC. You know, Bigfoot Silva, Josh Barnett, who was there. He, he's putting the company on notice. I think putting him in the heavyweight division he's going to make quite a statement is he going to come in there and take the belt right away you never know but he has great striking he has a wrestling pedigree he's a guy to watch was I bummed that Barnett lost absolutely just because I'm a fan but Cormier knew how to play the game he also knew how to work around Josh Barnett's wrestling to secure himself the victory great performance on his part and like I said he's yeah he's punched his ticket to the UFC Josh Barnett, they're saying, is going to do one more fight with Strike Force. What happens with him remains to be seen. I'd love to see Barnett in the UFC. The guy, the guy definitely has the tools. I think that he would be a great ambassador for the sport. And if the UFC doesn't take him, I'm sure Bellator would grab him immediately. Or he can sign with any pro wrestling organization. I mean, TNA would probably make a pitch for him if he goes to Bellator as well because they'll try and do like they're doing with King Mo, but Josh Barnett's persona, his size, the way he presents himself, he's a better fit in for WWE given the theatrics involved and the importance of mic work. But who knows? DeSova says in the chat that um Cormier would do well against Roy Nelson. And I have to agree with that assessment hundred percent. Roy Nelson, great ground game, likes to stand and trade, would definitely be a great test for Cormier. On top of the fact that Roy Nelson, they've established him as pretty much the gatekeeper for the heavyweight division. A lot of people feel that's uh, an unjust title, but the guy comes in there. He delivers exciting fights all the time. He's just missing that, that, that small, small, small motivating factor to make him better. Roy Nelson is, regardless of how you think he looks like a fat frog or whatever you, whatever preconceived notions you have about him, he's a tremendous athlete. Sure, he doesn't give a fuck about conditioning. But you know what? When you can knock somebody out with one punch, conditioning kind of goes out the fucking window. So make of it what you will. Honestly, Roy Nelson would be a better fit at 205 at light heavyweight just because it almost feels like he gets bullied at heavyweight because of his stature and the way his his body's proportioned. Who knows? If he made the cut to 205, he'd be able to do some damage, especially with his really well-rounded striking and ground game. But... That's something that Roy Nelson's going to have to take care of on his own. Let's get into the other MMA news for this week. Obviously, the Ultimate Fighter, uh, Dominic Cruz, Uriah Faber were your coaches. Dominic Cruz hurt his ACL and I believe his his MCL as well. So he is on the shelf and will need at least at minimum a year to recover. Uriah Faber will now be facing Henan Barrow for the interim bantamweight title at UFC 148. Uh, Barrow stepping in to be a, a, a great challenge for Faber. Barrow was supposed to fight Ivan Menjivar, but I think him and Faber are going to put on an awesome fight. And there's a small part of me that thinks that Faber needs to get his hands on this belt like that. Not to say that he's not relevant without it, but it just adds to his persona. You know, he's the champion, brash, a little cocky, marketable. It works. I think him and Barrow are definitely going to put put in that work for UFC 148, that's for sure. This past Saturday also, TMZ reported that John Bones Jones 
was arrested for DUI. He totaled his Bentley in Binghamton. Um, they're saying that John Jones, he crashed into a pole and was arrested at the scene by Broome County Sheriff's. By the Broome County Sheriff's Department, his mother posted bail a few hours later. And um, very, very, very interesting what's going to happen with John Jones. Of course, Malki Kawa acknowledged that he was arrested for DUI and asked for his privacy, blah, blah, blah. John Jones has publicly apologized on Twitter about his behavior. And, of course, he is probably scheduled to meet with Dana White, from what I've been hearing, shortly after he appears in court. Now... The funny thing about this is people rush to judgment. They automatically shit on John Jones, blah, blah, blah. Let's think about this from let's let's step out of the fickle fan box for a second and look at this as just rational human beings. You're 24 years old. You can pretty much beat anyone on the planet right now. You're known for for being one of the marquee athletes in an organization that has a huge social fan base. At 24 years old, you're usually worried about chasing girls, keg parties if you're still in college, and trying to find yourself. This guy is probably one of the guys that's considered one of the most dangerous guys in the world right now. He's definitely got gassed. Definitely. He got gassed, has himself a little Bentley, you know, the comparisons to Ali, etc., 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 went to his head, he got lit, he crashed into a fucking tree. Now, everybody's quick to crucify him. Oh, you know, he's, he's religious and blah, blah, blah. And what a great ambassador he is for the sport now. Don't anybody sit here and tell me that they've never done something stupid. Stupid. I did something stupid once. I, I went and messed around with a chick under some church steps, which is like grounds for me to go to hell. That's a fact. Did I, did I regret it? No, the fuck I didn't. Did I feel empowered by the fact that I was doing something so taboo and fucked up? Yes. 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 In the words of Daniel Bryan, absolutely. Same thing with John Jones. The guy has the entire world in the palm of his hand. Ridiculous amounts of money. Fast cars. Mainstream appeal. The, you know, the look that's marketable. It's, it's gone to his fucking head. Now... I applaud him for going on Facebook and saying, look, I fucked up. You know, I had a little too much to drink. I crashed my fucking car. I don't understand what fight fans want from John Jones that he hasn't already done. The guy apologized and that was it. Simple as that. And it's true. Yeah, he 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 has the holier than thou attitude. He has um, a lot of confidence. That, and, and I don't want to say that he's conceited because being conceited and being confident kind of can be interchanged depending on who you're talking to. But I think that he's a guy that has a firm belief in his ability and really believes his own hype, but that's not his, his fault. And that's not his management's fault. That's the UFC's fault to a, to a degree because they gave him the keys to the kingdom and they, they forget that they have an entire stable of athletes that they can build their company around. You can't just pluck the GSPs and the John Jones and the Brock Lesnar's and and put all your chips in those people because think about this what if he would have been driving and would have hit somebody what if he would have hit a car what if he would have injured himself to the point where he could never be able to perform now think about that your big name the guy who your company who the UFC sponsored was is now you know a criminal what are you going to do 
Like this, this you can kind of get past because he didn't kill anybody. He just fucked up his car and that was it. But think about guys like Rampage that went crazy and did all that crazy shit and the way that they were kind of looked at differently once it happened. I just feel that MMA fans running running to crucify this guy is stupid. But you know what? When he's winning, and this is this applies to anything in life. When you're on top of the world and you're winning, everybody loves you. Fuck up and people turn on you at the drop of a hat. And it's unfortunate. And I'm not saying it because I'm a Jones fan. I am a fan of his as an athlete. But I also feel that at 24 years old, it's a miracle he hasn't done anything crazier. You know, don't get me wrong. It's not, you know, he's not motorboating Karen Bryant, you know, the Rosa Parks of MMA, as she likes to call herself, you know, like Rampage is. But this is just, these are the kind of things that you would do at 24 years old. It's one fuck up, people. Move on. Besides, of course, Hannon Burrell, Uriah Faber, and of course, Chalen Anderson Silva, um, Ivan Menjovar will now be facing Mike Easton at UFC 148. That's going down July 7th. Also on that card for us, Griffin, Tito Ortiz, Rich Franklin, Kung Lee, uh, Stun Gun Kim, and Damian Maya. Let me just uh, look over at this chat. De Silva, I'm 23 and I'm not dumb enough to have a DUI. This is true, but when everybody gasses you up and thinks you're the man, you are prone to do dumb shit. De Silva, you don't have your head up your ass. That's what happens. When you have yes men telling you that you're the man and blah, 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 and hey, guys, did I have enough to drink? Nah, champ, you're good. Go ahead. That's that's what I'm talking about. Just people gassing him up and endangering the guy. Simple as that. Let's get into the other news. Uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission ruled unanimously in favor of granting Chael Sonnen therapeutic, a therapeutic use exemption for the use of testosterone in advance to his UFC 148 bout with Anderson Silva. Keith Kaiser and the commission admitted that there have been a growing number of testosterone, uh, testosterone therapy applicants in recent years, and all parties expressed a desire to bring on an additional expert to assist in the process. So, with that said, Chael went in there, said, Look, I got a low test level, my fucking balls hurt, I'm going to use this shit, do you guys approve? Now, to reference a conversation I had last night with um, with Crooklyn from Tapout, we were talking about testosterone replacement ter- therapy, and the fact is that I don't feel, and we we kind of both agreed that it's it's a huge huge edge. Maybe it's it's a more motivating factor. Maybe it gives you a bit more drive, but it's not like it's making you more muscular. We're not talking about HGH or growth hormone. It's just testosterone. Simple as that. Some people just have low testosterone levels, and frankly, if you have approval from a medical professional to use it then you should now of course everybody's going to jump and be like oh you know if chael sonnen beats anderson silva that means that the that the commission gave him full authority to cheat no because if a doctor says hey your test level is low and you're not you you know your sex drive is in the toilet it's either take viagra or you know take some testosterone and frankly it's easier to take the te- the testosterone versus taking the Viagra, which may cause heart problems, especially in an environment like mixed martial arts. Just some food for thought. In some other commission news, uh, the week prior when we did the show, we talked about Nick Diaz uh, taking it to the Nevada State Athletic Commission with regards to his failed drug test. Simple as the, the, the fact is that, like anything else, you go against a system and you don't have... 
uh, an ace in the hole, you're going to get fucked. And sadly, Nick Diaz got fucked. The Nevada State Athletic Commission suspended Nick Diaz for a year and fined him $60,000. According to what they were saying, you know, because of his positive test for marijuana metabolites, it was a factor in him being suspended. Now, his lawyer has said that the use of marijuana is not a violation of the statutes that the Nevada State Athletic Commission has in place. And I continue to stand by the fact that weed is not a performance-enhancing drug. It's not. It's not like he smoked a J before he went out there to fight. You know, maybe a week or two ago he may have smoked up, but it's not like he got high in the back and came out to fight. Anybody that says that weed is a performance-enhancing drug is a fucking idiot. You know, if it, it's not, like I said, yeah, it might dull, like, the pain receptors and things like that because you're, you're more mellow, but he's not smoking up before he fights. Simple as that. I do not believe, and I continue to stand by that fact, that it is not a performance-enhancing drug. And before anybody says, uh, oh, you know, uh, maybe because you support marijuana use. Nope, not that. I just don't pass judgment. You want to go and fucking smoke weed in your patio with your with your pants off? I don't give a shit. Just don't sit outside and flash anybody. You, you want to be a pothead? Knock yourself out. The guy does triathlons, has the best cardio in the game, I really doubt that weed has anything to do with either one of those things. Simple as that. He'll be eligible to apply for a license February 4th, 2013. So there you have it. As I mentioned earlier at the, at the top of the MMA segment, the Ultimate Fighter finale is June 1st. Main event, Jake Ellenberger, Martin Campman. You also have the, the tough finalist, number one, taking on the number two finalist, also, the prelims on Fuel TV have a couple of good fights as well. Jonathan Brookins is on that card, as are some of the members of this season's Ultimate Fighter. So that's going to be going down June 1st at the Pearl Palms Casino in Vegas. All right, guys, that's going to wrap the MMA segment for this week. Let's talk some pro wrestling. We want the gold, sucker! Hulk Hogan, we're coming for you, nigga! <laughs> Let's talk about the lackluster pay-per-view and Raw that WWE gave us this this past week. Let's go into Over the Limit first. On the pre-show, Zack Ryder took on Kane in a match that was decently competitive. Of course, the the burial of Zack Ryder continues, which is unfortunate because the guy had the crowd in the palm of his hand months ago. And now he comes out and yeah, they cheer for him, but the response is rather tepid to say the least. Next up, we had a People Power Battle Royal. The winner would become the number one contender for either the IC or United States Championship. Um, This was actually a very enjoyable match, and of course, it marked the return of Christian, who ended up winning the Battle Royal, and shortly after, he said that he was going to challenge Santino for the U.S. Championship. So, more on that later on. Our WWE Tag Team title match, the, the, the brothers 
Kingston and R-Truth took on uh, Biff Tannen and Kurt Russell, a.k.a. Jack Swagger and Dolph Ziggler. And it was actually a very good match. These guys have great chemistry. I, I was very surprised only because R-Truth has a hit and miss with, with a lot of his matches. And in this match, they worked really, really well. Once again, I was bummed that Ziggler ate the pinfall. They just continue to make him just be the bitch in all these matches. Kofi Kingston caught him with the trouble in paradise. But it's really, really good that they're starting to kind of invest a little bit of energy into their tag team division. I do feel that Ziggler has tremendous potential as a singles, com- as a singles competitor, but you take what you can get. The Divas Championship was defended by Layla against Beth Phoenix. And what, what what I considered a actual actually very passable match, but we but we go into the same problem we've had with the Divas division for quite some time. Other than Beth Phoenix, Natalia, and Karma, you really don't have a legit threat for the on the face side of the women's division. Every heel that you have, unless you switch Natalia and make her a face, is pretty much the most dominant female on that roster. The faces, you got Kelly Kelly, you got Layla, you know, Eve Torres isn't really wrestling now, but you don't have that real powerhouse face that you can kind of get behind. The Divas don't have the equivalent of a John Cena for their division. They don't. Back in the Attitude Era, Trish Stratus was your John Cena of your Attitude Era. Lita also was was a secondary performer that you can always rely on. But back then, they also had a deeper division. You had Ivory, you had Molly Holly. Um, who else did you have? You had a, you had a decent a decent roster of divas that can wrestle. Now you got a couple of Playboy playmates, and then the girls that can wrestle aren't being trained enough to carry matches. AJ Lee isn't being showcased the way she should be. Caitlyn, uh, Tamina Snuka, who you can really do a lot with, considering her pedigree and who her father is. Um, I'm starting to see Maxine more on on television, so that's good. Um, but still, it just feels like that that division needs um, a strong female presence for the faces, which they're going to need to work on in order to start giving some validity to that, to, you know, to the women's division. Our fatal four way match was was actually I expected it to be a train wreck, and I honestly thought they were going to take the belt off of Sheamus. Um, turns out that Sheamus took the Retained the belt by defeating Chris Jericho with his finisher, the White Noise, which is a variation of the Kryptonite Crunch. I actually enjoyed this match. I felt there was going to be a bit of a train wreck with Del Rio being in there, just because it's such a contrast to styles. You got the Bruiser and Sheamus. You have the Loose Cannon and Orton. You have the the technical and high flying prowess of Del Rio and Jericho. He kind of flip flops between just being more technical and being high flying, but. It was actually a great mix of styles. It just felt very flat. Next up, we get The Miz. He comes out talking some shit, starts dancing, which was terrible, and challenges Brodus Clay. And, of course, The Miz gets squashed in this match. I don't know why, considering that this is a guy that he's going to be headlining the Marine movie, and he has a tremendous upside. You're jobbing him out to King Hippo on pay-per-view. No idea why the fuck they did that. Next up, we were supposed to have a U.S. title match with Cody Rhodes, I mean with uh, Christian and Santino, but Cody Rhodes decided to run his mouth and Christian changed his mind, challenged Cody Rhodes, and won with the kill switch, taking the IC belt off of everybody's favorite member of the Rhodes family with the lisp. And um, 
for, for some reason, a lot of people are saying that it's because Cody Rhodes is going to take a break. He's got some little injuries that are nagging and that he'll be back good as new. And allegedly, he's going to be feuding with CM Punk. So maybe he's going to get a bump into the upper card. It would be nice to see a fresh face in there for the heels. So we'll see how that pans out. And of course, WWE Championship match, CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, holy shit from start to finish. An amazing, amazing match. Definitely a match that these guys can put, you know, they can they can document as a classic. Because they, they were amazing from start to finish. Great submissions, stiff wrestling. Very, very, very impressed with both guys. Uh, Daniel Bryan, I think the WWE has realized that they have themselves a guaranteed feud that will keep people interested. Punk is good on the mic. Brian is developing on the mic, but he's, he's starting to hold his own. Not only that, but you have great technique there, which makes for, for great, great wrestling. This goes back to uh, the Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit feuds. Same thing. You had Kurt Angle, who was good on the mic, had the complete package with wrestling pedigree, and then you had Benoit, who was not as vocal but also had a tremendous pedigree. And whenever those two those two guys got together for matches, it was always magic. Same thing is happening with Punk and Brian. They're capturing it. They're they're showing people that you know, coming from Ring of Honor, coming from the Indies, that you can get a four star wrestling pedigree without having to be part of the WWE system. And I commend them for it. Amazing, amazing match. CM Punk re- retained the belt after rolling through the yes lock. And getting Daniel Bryan's shoulders down. So, very, very good match. And the possibility of a rematch is always there. Next up, we had another glorified squash with Ryback coming out and killing Camacho dead, who was with Hunico. Now, the funny thing is with Ryback, they're using the real old school push, comes out, doesn't really say much, kills everybody dead. Ryback is the equivalent of what would happen if Goldberg and Rob Van Dam had a baby, pretty much. He comes out, kills people, doesn't say much. Screams, feed me more, which I'm sure is going to be a t-shirt. I I, I kind of like using the old school approach for his character because it, it it's you're building up, you're squashing nameless guys. Now you're starting to really kind of squash lower level guys. Then you're probably going to get yourself into a little mid-tier feud, which is what you need. The problem is that if you don't start moving him in that direction soon, by the time he gets into a mid-feud, nobody's going to give a fuck about this guy. And of course, John Cena and Johnny Ace, we know how the fuck this was going to go. Think about it from the standpoint that, look, the Big Show got fired earlier this week. Oh, how convenient. The Big Show, not an employee, which would not have John Laurinaitis get fired if he got himself involved, got himself involved. Seriously, even Stevie Wonder could see that shit. And, And it just felt like John Cena was stalling in this match. You know, I give I give Johnny Ace credit. He took an ass whooping. He did. And he showed that he can hang a little bit, which is fine. You know, the guy, the guy, if you watch some of his Japanese stuff, he wasn't a shitty wrestler. He was just bland as shit. Real white bread. But decent match. It's just that the big show involvement. I saw it from a mile away. As soon as he got fired on Monday, I said, <clears throat> excuse me. I said, this is going to be the heel turn for big show. And he's going to help Laurinaitis win. And rationally, you would say to yourself, and I like that John Cena brought it up, hey, even if Johnny Ace loses, whoever manages SmackDown would rehire the big show. I like that. I like that Cena acknowledged that because you know what? People that have some common sense about them are going to be like, hey, 
don't you think that Teddy Long would have hired Big Show back? Like, anybody could see that. But I'm glad that they had that acknowledged by Cena the following night to kind of plug that little hole in the story. Overall, the card, excluding Punk and Brian, which was fantastic, it, it was pretty much paint by numbers. It felt like it was an extended episode of Raw. I was not 100% impressed, but I was not totally dissatisfied. I will tell you this, though. That wasn't a $60 pay-per-view, and I really hope that WWE, when they launch the network, they do what I've heard they're going to do, which is they're going to take all these smaller pay-per-views, give them on the network, and then put the big four on pay-per-view. You know, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Royal Rumble, and Survivor Series. I honestly think it would be better because you're building these pay-per-views pretty much every three weeks as a pay-per-view. And it kind of feels like they run the well dry in terms of logical feuds that would keep the audience entertained. Now, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, I was talking to one guy. He's like, you know, Rich, it it almost seems like you hate everything about wrestling since you've been doing the show. And I understand where he was coming from, but it's not the fact that I hate everything since I've been doing the show. It's just the fact that back then, when we were younger, the stories lasted longer. There weren't pay-per-views every three weeks, so you were able to give the storylines levels and layers. And not only that, you'd be able to help these guys build themselves into personas that you can get behind. You know, you had, back then you had, let's go further back. When D-Generation X came out and they were feuding with the Nation of Domination, that feud lasted a while between skits and matches between all the members Not only that, but you actually got yourself invested in guys like D'Lo Brown. Um, Of course, Farouk, who ended up, you know, becoming Ron Simmons. You, You became invested in these guys because you got the opportunity to watch them wrestle frequently. Now it almost feels like they move the shit along in three week in three week increments and don't give the audience a chance to absorb what the fuck is going on. Most times I'll blink and I'll be like, holy shit, there's a pay-per-view next week just because there's no there's no level of engagement there. It's just book, 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 paint by numbers, give us 60 bucks. And I'm sorry, but this was not a $60 pay-per-view if you're watching it in HD. It wasn't a $50 pay-per-view either, and it sure as fuck isn't even a $30 pay-per-view. I would equate this to a $10 or $20 pay-per-view. Sorry to say, but that's how I feel about it. And of course... If you've been reading the buried columns from Quark and Blade, you'll know that they share a similar sentiment. So, with that said, over the limit, kind of flat. Getting into Raw, Raw, of course, Johnny Ace came out in a fucking, in a scooter like the one my grandmother drives to the store every week. And David Otunga, uh, it was a setup for the big show to come out and yell into the microphone about how the crowd didn't give a fuck about him, solidify himself as a heel, blah, 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 we know. David Otunga comes out. Murder death killed by John Cena. After where afterwards he gets attacked by Rex Hawkins, Chaco Cena, Darren Young, and bootleg Lamar Odom, Titus O'Neil, and he gets saved by Sheamus. Now I kind of liked where they went with this because you can tell that Laurinaitis is starting to build himself a little stable of loyalists. You know, with Rex and Hawkins, Young and O'Neill, it's working out well, and I think that this is going to be a great motivator. For the tag team division, because now you got these teams of guys that are with John Laurinaitis trying to get the belts, 
it's going to be great for the tag team division. Hopefully they'll continue that and also make those guys a stable. Of course, their involvement leads to a two-on-three handicap lumberjack match, which I'll get into in a minute. Next, Ricardo Rodriguez. They're getting ready to introduce Alberto Del Rio. Nice little exchange with Santino. I really hope that this is a segue for Rodriguez to start wrestling. I think that he is a very, very, very underutilized talent. The guy definitely has the tools to be a force in the business. He has a great high-flying skill set. Just look up video of him on YouTube as Chimera, a masked wrestler. I think he has the tools to either be in a tag team with Del Rio or even hold his own on the mid-card, but they figure that making him a mic-holding lackey is the way to go, which... I just find to be unfortunate. Next up, our buddy Blandy Borton took on Alberto Del Rio. Jericho comes out, kills Orton, giving Del Rio uh, the victory, basically, even though Orton took the DQ. And I say they gave him the victory because Del Rio put Orton in an ass whooping, looked strong in the match, and the only reason he lost was because Jericho got involved, which in turn kept Orton strong as well. It was a very... um, I want to say it was just a build for a feud with Jericho and Orton, which I don't mind. I think those guys work would work well together. I just think that Chris Jericho would eat Randy Orton's lunch in the promo department. Because Randy Orton's methodical promos are complete fucking dog shit. So against a guy like Jericho who comes out and he's like, yeah, baby, yeah, I'm fucking crazy. My jacket glows. Holy shit. Like, it just doesn't... The the style, the contrast in styles on the mic are just a hundred percent different, and that's the only thing that concerns me. Wrestling wise, I think they'll do well feuding, but mic wise, not so much. Nice little exchange between Punk and Brian, setting up a match with Kane for Punk to get his revenge for the bullshit that Brian pulled last week. I kind of like that they use Kane in more of a badass role. Because as of late, Kane has been a bitch. Don't get me wrong, he's been winning most of his matches. But I just feel that he's not a scary monster kind of dude. That when it, back in the day, Kane would come out, Kane would come out, and people would be like, "Oh shit, somebody's getting fucked up." Now Kane comes out, and you usually get up and go grab a hot dog or go and take a bathroom break, just because his matches once again very formulaic. If if you're trying to build Kane as the next Undertaker. You need to do more than just have the pyro and the creepy music. You need more to his character. You need a darker dimension to it to get people to get behind Kane again. Nobody takes Kane seriously. Kane is the mass equivalent of the big show. He comes out, he looks kind of scary, but nobody gives a fuck about the guy. Simple as that. Christian kills Jinder Mahal dead. Mahal comes out with his little fucking turban on. Racial overcoats in full effect. Um, I do have to admit that Jinder looked a little better in this match. Sometimes he goes out there and he looks like he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. But it was passable. It was passable. Um, I like Christian's new finish with the frog splash. I mean, the kill switch is nice. But I haven't seen anybody lately use the frog splash in the WWE. I think, you know, since the passing of Eddie Guerrero, it's been kind of hard to find a guy that makes the frog splash look awesome other than Rob Van Dam. But I think Christian can make that work. Beth Phoenix and Kelly Kelly, you know what this is. This is my I'm going to get up and grab some chips match because Kelly Kelly got killed by Beth Phoenix. Now, in in, in some contradictory booking, when Kelly Kelly had the belt, 
she caught Beth Phoenix all the time, and she got a couple of wins on her to to help get her over. Now she's pretty much squash fodder to give Beth Phoenix some incentive in her feud with Layla. It, w- once again, a lot of contradictory booking. This was another another low point for Raw this week. And of course, our handicap lumberjack match was exactly what you would expect it to be because it was a complete catastrophe. Fucking Lord Tensai coming out skulking around. How are you a 300-pound fat guy and you skulk around super quietly like a ninja? How does that happen? He, you are you are ginormous. I can point you out in a lineup with the lights out because you're white and fat. Stop it. Stop skulking around like you're Quang in the fucking late, late early 90s when Quang was like the, the ninja of WWE, which was played at the time by Savio Vega. Just come out there, be the big guy that beats people's asses, and keep it at that. Unfortunately, that's not the way it goes. Raw, much like Over the Limit, super, super flat this week. Now, let's get into the wrestling news. There's some crazy shit I want to go into. First off, China collapsed at a porn convention this week. Maybe she might have got indigestion from swallowing some kids, but odds are maybe she's drinking, taking some drugs. You guys know the deal. This is one of those things that's the stereotypical thing that's associated with people in wrestling that just don't find a way to keep themselves relevant. They either go to drugs or go to doing outlandish things. China is in that category right now. She goes, oh, I want to do porn. It's like you're a giant chick whose clit is the size of the microphone I'm talking through. And you can pretty much pee standing up. It's, it's, it's really negotiable if you're a guy or a girl. And um, it's almost like you're on Death Watch, which I like that De Silva referenced that in the chat. It's true. Death Watch, her and Scott Hall. It's like they found her passed out a, a couple of weeks prior. She passed out here. She got booted out of a party because of unruly behavior. It's ridiculous. She passed out in a fucking lobby. Mind you, she was at the Exotica Expo to promote promote, uh, Vivid's porn parody of The Avengers where she plays She-Hulk. Allegedly, she insisted she was okay. It's like, what are you going to blame it on? Exhaustion? Oh, I got plowed in the ass for a scene yesterday. And, and, you know, it's very, very exhausting. Are you kidding me? Stop the drugs and stop them now before we fucking read on TMZ that they find you passed out in a hotel room with 17 different types of pills and alcohol. Because that's where this is fucking going. Cut the shit. You want to go? You want to get fucking skeeted on? You want to pretend you're She-Hulk or whatever jacked up Marvel heroin is being used by Vivid? That's fine. But you know what? You're always going to be associated with wrestling. So please keep yourself alive so that when... You know, the time comes and you do leave this planet. It's not because of drugs and alcohol and the wrestling business. Do us that favor. In something that, I'm, that I haven't done in a while, I'm actually going to talk about TNA this week. A lot of people are saying that TNA is interested in bringing in John Morrison and Molina, which honestly, for them, it's a good pickup. I think John Morrison would be a great addition to the X Division, and knowing TNA, they'll put the belt on him immediately because, you know, they love WWE's leftovers. Molina would be good for the knockouts. I honestly want them separate, though. Do not put them as a valet and a wrestler because it's way too fucking cliched and expected. Put Molina in the knockouts. Put John Morrison 
amongst either the X division or in the mid card and leave it at that. Don't fucking go put them together as a pair and, and, and expect to capture the same magic they had when they were in the WWE. It's not the same shit anymore. Stephanie McMahon was interviewed recently by IGN. She actually talked about a couple of things. First off, she was talking about Raw going three hours. She said that um, she's really excited. You know, we do a three-hour show called the pay-per-view almost every month. This is what she said. And Monday Night Raw, we've done three hours before, so we feel great about it. She thinks that it'll be a great opportunity to do something different. They're going to have an interactive aspect. She said that fans at home are going to be able to pick matches, stipulations, anything and everything. It's going to be different every week. Their plan is to make Raw the most interactive show in television history. We'll see how that goes. She was also asked if she'd come back to WWE television, and she said, who knows, but you've got to check out the 1,000th episode of Raw July 23rd, and you'll see what happens. So you never know. We may see Stephanie McMahon back on television July 23rd when Raw goes three hours for the 1,000th episode. We'll see what the deal is with that. I did want to kind of go into this little list here that WWE.com put up earlier this week about the 50 WCW stars of all time. Now, looking at this list, I'm going to run through it kind of quick. Number 50 was Jeff Jarrett. 49 was Juventud Guerrera. 48 was Dennis Rodman. Why? I don't know. 47 was Ming. 46 was Larry Zabisco. Why? 45 was Canyon, which should have been higher. Bobby Eaton was 44. Saturn was 43, which is crazy because Saturn was more well-known for his WWE run than he was for WCW. I mean, he was part of the flock and whatever, but it wasn't like it wasn't like when he was in ECW as part of the Eliminators or in WWE when he was um when he came in with Benoit Malenko and Eddie Guerrero. 42 was Dustin Rhodes, 41 was Bret Hart, 40 was Kevin Sullivan which should have been higher. Kurt Hennig was 39, Michael Hayes was 38, Cactus Jack 37, Ultimo Dragon 36. Which is crazy because, again, most of these guys in the WWE doesn't make sense. Um, I fucked up. I said that um, Conan was 45. The late Chris Canyon was 45. Conan was actually 34. Terry Funk was 33. Lance Storm, which which could have been higher up on the list. I think Lance Storm, given his leadership of Team Canada at the time, his technical prowess, um, his ECW history as well, could have been a lot higher. The Great Muda, which, again... Should have been placed higher. Raven, Billy Kidman was 29, Buff Bagwell. Jericho was 27. The late Rick Rude was 26. Eric Bischoff was 25. He shouldn't even be on this list. And if he is going to be considered that, he should be higher up. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, 24. Barry Windham. Rey Mysterio, 22, which boggles my fucking mind. Should have been a lot higher. Rick Steiner was 21. The late Brian Pillman was 20, which I can I can understand. I mean... His career in WCW, he had a, a, a great stint, tag team partners with Stone Cold Steve Austin as the Hollywood Blondes. Um, his solo run was just as good. He had some really great matches. The Giant was 19. Eddie Guerrero, 18. Arn Anderson was 17. Ron Simmons was 16. Stunning Steve Austin was 15. Psycho Sid Vicious was 14. Just just from a mercy standpoint, they could have placed him a lot higher after they made him pretty much break his fucking leg on television. Dean Malenko was 13. Scott Hall was 12. Big Van Vader was 11, which is awesome. Vader, I've always wondered 
what the fuck is Vader up to that they haven't done anything with him? You mean to tell me you can't make him like a Lauronitis enforcer or or something? You don't have to make him wrestle, but just be involved in, in, in WWE programming. I, I really would like to know what the deal is with Vader and why they've never done anything more with him, considering that almost everybody on this list has come and gone from the WWE more than once. Scott Steiner was 10. Macho Man Randy Savage was 9. Booker T was 8. Lex Luger was 7. Diamond Dallas Page was 6, which is fine. Kevin Nash was 5. Goldberg was 4, which, again, Goldberg, considering he was part of the resurgence of WCW, should have been at least top 3. Hogan was actually number 3. Ric Flair was number 2. And Sting was number 1. Now, I was going, I was talking about this with one of my coworkers just because he's a casual wrestling fan. And he was like, you know, Sting, Ric Flair, and Goldberg should have been in the top three because they were WCW products at the time, which was debatable because Ric Flair had been in the WWE. But if you really want to look at it, Diamond Dallas Page was a, was a WCW product. So was Booker T. Those guys, it's true. You could probably have put them higher. Same goes with Dean Malenko. Nothing beats the man of a thousand holes feuding with Chris Jericho and leading to one of Chris Jericho's best promos ever with him talking about being the man of 1,004 holds. But again, lists like this are always debatable. Jeff Jarrett at 50, I can probably was a bit of a jab at Jeff Jarrett considering how much he did in WCW as a main eventer, you know, during the middle of, of the huge WCW run. But make of it what you will. Like I said, lists like this lead to a lot of debate. And um, I actually debated, like I said, with more than one person about the people on this list. But you can check it out on WWE.com. And I believe they have a comment section as well where um, people can sound off about how they feel about it. Next up, Alex Shelley um, confirmed that he was, well, it hasn't been confirmed, but that it's been said, according to the Wrestling Observer, that he is leaving TNA when his contract is up. A lot of people are saying that all signs point to the WWE. So part of this is based on the fact that it's because they're going to be doing a rumored cruiserweight show for the network. We'll see how it goes. I think Alex Shelley has a good enough look and uh, a wrestling skill set that would make him fit in rather well in the, in the WWE at this point. Not only that, but I've noticed that they are shying away from the super Jack dudes that lumber around. I mean, there still are a few, but they're starting to grab guys that are, entertaining and can really deliver i'm sure that this is going to be mentioned on raw at least 50 times within the next few weeks but layla and kelly kelly are in the maximum 100 as are stacy keebler and maria menounos all tied to wrestling layla came in at number 95 kelly kelly ranked at number 38 this year so i'm sure this will be mentioned by michael cole like i said at least 50 times lawler will probably be looking at the magazine and go, here's Layla, poppies, blah, 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 you know, jerk off in my hand, smear it on the book type shit. But, you know, the mainstream appeal is is always going to be there, and if they can't do Playboy because of the whole PG thing, Maxim's a good alternative. Because frankly, Maxim is just Playboy with very thin fabric covering the naughty bits. That's my assessment. Dixie Carter was interviewed by... um. Stephen Mulhausen of the Fight Club Chicago show. And she was talking about a lot of the criticism directed at Hulk Hogan and that she feels Hogan gets a bum rap. Now, I wanted to share this with you guys because 
This is when you know that somebody else has to be pulling the fucking strings. She says, and I quote, I think people think that he's just showing up and collecting some big fat paycheck and it couldn't be further from the truth. This guy, this legend in our business, truly, he surpasses the word wrestling itself. He is so immersed in our business and helping us grow our business on days he's not even on shows. He's driving an hour and a half to sit in on our agents meetings and help working with agents and talent on the night of the show. If we have a pay-per-view and he's not on it, he's there. He's working his tail off. Then she goes on to say, and then you have, what does Hulk Hogan bring to a company such as ours? It opens, it opens doors and gives us visibility. That's everything. He's making the business calls for us. He's talking to advertisers. He's showing up and working with Viacom stuff. He's as vested as you can possibly be. And I think he will always be known for so many big things throughout his career. I'm hopeful that this period of his life, even when he's not in the ring wrestling, will be one that fans are so proud of as to how he's giving so much back to this sport and how much he's giving back currently and how he's helping these younger guys grow and what he's doing for our industry. Who the fuck decided that Dixie Carter should even be talking about shit like this? I'm sorry. Hulk Hogan has accomplished shit in TNA. Shit. Him and Eric Bischoff have come in and the company is shit. I'm sorry, it is. The only things that they've managed to accomplish are getting rid of the six-sided ring, changing the set a little bit, getting in a couple of guys like Rob Van Dam, all right. But other than that, nothing. Garrett Bischoff is all they've given us. Garrett Bischoff and shit. Eric Bischoff on our television for hours upon hours at a time. Hogan on TV, hours upon hours, which as of late, of course, has been diminished, which is good, but still. He hasn't done anything to really help the young guys get over. There's been instances where he shit on some of these guys. Oh, this guy's not ready. Motherfucker, this guy was carrying this company before you got there. Oh, you know, this guy's the future of this company. Garrett Bischoff is not the future of anything, but maybe a bartender at TGI Fridays. Get the fuck out of here. I don't know what the fuck crack Dixie Carter is smoking, but the fact is that Hulk Hogan has really done nothing for that company a little mainstream exposure you send him to the spike tv awards you got his daughter on fucking television now debuting next week as head of the knockout really that bitch should have been wrestling years ago not singing wrestling she's like 900 feet tall she should wrestle she should have wrestled from the get-go she'd probably be making more money now and have more mainstream exposure because of wrestling, as opposed to her lame, wannabe fucking singing career. Get the fuck out of here. Dixie Carter, I'm sorry, but somebody fed you that entire fucking diatribe of shit that you shared in that interview. I can't, I can't sit here with a straight face and say anything that you said is remotely right. On the contrary, Eric Bischoff could be run by... Uh, put it like this, TNA can be run by the fucking guys that run Sesame Street... And they do a better job booking that entire show than Hogan and Bischoff have done in the entire time they've been there. I'd rather watch the fucking Muppets wrestle than some of the shit you guys do. Which is unfortunate because I say it all the time. You have huge, huge, huge surpluses of great talent. You do. De Silva asked in the chat if he can run TNA. Go for it, dude. You could probably do a better job. I think my cat's 
Okay, some of those cats with ties that you see on the on the web can fucking run TNA better. It's it's appalling, and the fact that she goes out there and she has to defend this is even more ridiculous. It's like, look, the guy came in and you've accomplished shit. You've never beaten WWE in ratings. You've never beat WWE in pay per view buy rates, and the mainstream exposure you got is is marginal at best. Signing King Mo, in my opinion, is probably the best thing you've done. And you guys have the, 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 the potential to fuck that up too. So we'll see where it goes. But honestly, she was full of shit in this interview. As I said, Brooke Hogan was making the rounds this week. She was all over the television earlier today. Uh, she was on Fox and Friends, popped up on Inside Edition, Showbiz Tonight, blah, blah, blah. She had ODB and Velvet Sky in tow. And um, she also popped up on a couple of serious radio shows. Like I said, I understand what they're doing, but this is also just a platform for her to get herself out there for some reality shit that she's doing. So it's not even like she's in TNA to legit entertain the concept of wrestling. She's there just to get her name out there to build up whatever piece of shit reality show she's going to shill. So it's not like she's there to even give a fuck about this company. It's a sad state of affairs, folks. Last bit of wrestling news to wrap things up. Rey Mysterio has been on the shelf since August, and as a result, the WWE has extended his contract for at least 10 or 11 months. So if Rey Mysterio thought he'd be able to get himself out of his contract when it was up, unfortunately, due to the amount of injuries he suffered, he's going to have to stick around a, a, a while longer, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think Rey Mysterio is getting to the age where I think if he injures himself severely any further, any knee injuries or anything of that nature, he really should retire. The guy has kids. He wants to be able to get up, take a shit, and be able to wipe his ass. Don't don't put it all out there, Rey Mysterio. You've made enough money. Simple as that. All right, guys, we're going to jump right into video games. So let's get it started. Figured we'd take it back with some Galaga. First off, Uh, Ubisoft has announced that they're going to be doing a closed beta of Far Cry 3, which you'll be able to pick up if you bagged Ghost Recon from GameStop. If you're a GameStop Power Up Rewards member, you'll be able to get access to the closed beta on the 360 and the PS3. In addition, though, Ubisoft is going to be giving 500 codes away via Facebook. Keep an eye out via Facebook and Twitter for any announcements relating to the beta, which should be out in the next couple of weeks. A name that I haven't heard of in ages is actually making a comeback, that being Sly Cooper. Uh, Sly Cooper Thieves in Time will be coming out for the PlayStation 3, but also now for the Vita as well. The game is going to have cross-save compatibility between the PS3 and the Vita. In addition to that, the Vita version is going to allow you to use uh, the tilt functionality as well as the pad on the back of the system. I actually like the Sly Cooper games. I was a fan of, you know, Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter and all that, so... I may actually give Sly Cooper a, a, a playthrough only because it's a game I, I haven't heard of in years, and those were always fun platforming games to play. So nice to see that they're going with that, and they're actually trying to utilize a lot of that cross-system compatibility be- between the PS3 and the Vita. I think it makes um, the games more enticing to, to gamers, and it allows just a, another level of interactivity between the handheld and the console. Now, the big news this week I wanted to talk about was 38 Studios. 
38 Studios is the studio behind the Kingdoms of Amalur game, which um, a lot of people really liked. It's done very well. Unfortunately, it um, the company is just not doing so well to the point where it ended very, very terribly today. Uh, first off, they were saying that they couldn't make payroll initially and that they had paid a $1.1 million check to the Rhode Island Economic Development Corporation but the check wasn't um, accepted due to insufficient funds. Also, um, the check bounced. Then they ended up later on paying it, you know, repaying it towards the loan that they got from the state. Pretty much the way it works is they, um, the state lent 38 studios 40, about $49 million. They had to pay back that money in installments, which they haven't been able to do. Uh, based on what, what's been said, they owe $12.6 million. Well, they're going to have $12.6 million in 2013. But it gets crazier. It seems that the CEO and pretty much everybody just took a backdoor and, and canned the company. Um, employees hadn't been pay- paid since May 1st. The healthcare was set to expire, I believe, at midnight tonight or midnight yesterday. And then, today, all the employees were let go. All 379 employees were let go. And it's, 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 it's really, really sad. Um, you know, developers, artists, designers. It, the reason I find this to be highly, highly unfortunate, besides the fact that these people all lost their jobs, is because... The the state invested this money into this company. Allegedly, the Kingdoms of Amalur game did not sell enough, even though it was successful, to repay. Excuse me, to repay whatever loans they had, and as a result, the employees suffered, which is 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 just complete garbage. And I really feel like somebody there there has to there really had to have been some shenanigans, which I'm sure we'll find out about later on, because it's just not. It doesn't make any sense. You put out a game, the game is successful, but yet there's no other money. You couldn't secure any other backing from any other companies based on a game that you put out. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. It seems very, very suspect. That's all I'm saying. But I'm sure we'll get more news within the next couple of weeks, and of course I'll report it as it develops. Those of you that were looking forward to the new Devil May Cry game will not be playing it until 2013. Seems that Capcom put out a press release saying that they have changed the date and that the game will now be releasing January 15th, 2013. It'll also be getting released on PC as well. Capcom and and a lot of companies are just pushing games into 2013, which I find it to be very weird because right now I feel that there's a bit of a drought with regards to games. It just, it's just, I, I don't get it. I mean, Devil May Cry, while it, it's not the, the series that's going out there making Call of Duty numbers, it's still a game that people like to play. And moving it into 2013, not only that, but moving it after the holidays is just, it's just not going to be good, in my opinion. I feel that you have to strike while the iron is hot. And Slick makes a valid point. Max Payne 3 did come out, and it is. It is, it has been, you know, I think they've sold 3 million units already and lolly, all right, lollipop chainsaw. But the reason I state that it's a drought 
is because you haven't had uh, big first-party releases. Yeah, Max Payne is out there, but Take-Two, as of right now, seems to have been doing a loss. When I'm talking about a drought, I'm talking about uh, large first-party releases on, on par with, you know, Call of Duty, uh, Mass Effect, shit like that. Games that you know are going to sell millions and millions and millions of units. I want to really look at the MPD numbers next month. I'm sure Max Payne is going to be up there for this month in terms of sales, 3 million units sold. But I just don't feel that Max Payne has the same type of appeal as a game like, you know, like I said, Call of Duty or Halo or even Street Fighter Cross Tekken, which was considered a, a huge uh, you know, third-party title. And we know how that went. But there's a lot of factors to that as well, which can be a conversation that that can take up an entire segment. But I'm just talking about big box titles that move millions and millions and millions of units. That That's all I'm saying. I just feel that there's a drought regarding that. Lollipop Chainsaw, I'm definitely going to play. Max Payne 3 is on my list to play. I know Ben is going to review it as well. Um, but th- there are no big box titles. I know Mario Tennis came out on the 3DS again. You know, Mario Tennis, whoop-de-fucking-do. But we'll see what the deal is. Speaking of Slick, and it's funny he brings this to my attention, I wanted to bring this to his. Deep Silver has announced that Dead Island Game of the Year Edition will be released June 26th on the PS3, 360, and PC for $29.99. Besides the original game, you're going to get Ryder White, the Bloodbath Arena, and the Ripper DLCs. As I see Slick write motherfucker in caps. <laughs> Sorry, dude. I, I I knew this was probably going to get under your skin. But um, I, Game of the Year Editions is, is just another out for a lot of these companies. We know it's happening with Batman. Um, I'm sure it's going to be a Game of the Year Edition probably for Call of Duty. Uh, maybe for Battlefield with all the extra shit. Who knows? But yeah, June 26th, my man. Rider White, Bloodbath Arena, and Ripper DLC included for a nice $30. Speaking of double-dipping, triple-dipping, and quadruple-dipping, let's talk about Capcom, which is probably going to get my money. And um, I see Slick is calling in. I'll bring him on in a second. Capcom is going to be dropping a $150 Street Fighter 25th Anniversary Collector Set for the 360 and PS3. It has 15 discs. Now, everybody's probably creaming in their jeans trying to say, oh, it's going to be all the great Street Fighter games. These are the titles you're going to be getting. Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo HD Remix. Street Fighter 3 Third Strike Online. Super Street Fighter 4 Arcade Edition with DLC. Street Fighter Cross Tekken with DLC. You're also getting a documentary, the two anime films, the Street Fighter animated series, and 11 discs of music. You're also going to get a statue of Ryu and a Ryu belt as well. Now... Uh, it's it's great that you're going to put a documentary and you're going to put 11 discs of music, but what about the Street Fighter Alpha series? Why don't you put those in there? I'm sure people would have loved to have played those. You're, you're making me pay $150 and almost all the games that are there are all recent. What the fuck is the incentive? The statue? 11 discs of music? Are you fucking kidding me? Why didn't you take Alpha 1, Alpha 2, Alpha 3, throw them in there? Fuck it, I would have even thrown fucking EX and EX2 in there. Just because they are Capcom, you know, they are, they're, they're partially licensed by Capcom, fuck it. At least give us those old games with a fresh coat of paint, even if they're a collection. And, and it would have given people more of an incentive. But you're making people rebuy the same shit. What, for a documentary and two anime films? Fuck out of here. 
I contemplated buying it, but I don't know. Looking at what's included, I'm most of the, almost all the shit on that list I already own. But I'll go into it a little further with Slick. Let me bring him on. Uh... Slick, what's going on, brother? Bag of dicks. I knew you were going to say that, and that's why I was. I didn't tell you, you know, off air because I said Slick is going to hear this shit and he's going to be extremely annoyed. Let's start with Dead Island, because I'd rather hear shit about, you know, the supposed Dead World sequel that, you know, isn't going anywhere as yet. But I'm tired of this game of the year shit when they put out things that you can't buy otherwise, because that Ripper mod that you're talking about, there was like, you, you have to get that with the pre-order, otherwise you just don't get it. And the same thing is going with with the Batman game of the year because it has this quote-unquote final chapter of the game where Harley Quinn tries to get revenge on Batman because, spoiler alert, the Joker dies. But um, you can't just download that if you if you got, you know, even the 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 $100 version of the game, which I did. It's like, that was supposed to be like, I think, an iPad-exclusive game. Now they're putting it out in the Game of the Year version, and nobody else on PS3 or 360 can get it. What kind of shit is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the shit the shit is completely fucked up. And, but the, the thing is, and, and this, is, this is super annoying, it's just the fact you go, you buy this game, you pay, you pay 60 bucks, and then... When you buy the game for the 60 bucks, you buy the DLC, which whatever, $10, $15, $20 even. Now that $60 game just became an $80 game. Then whatever other add-ons you... Before you know it, you got basically what amounts to a $100 game. Now, it's like after you spend that money, it's almost a slap in the face that they released the game with all that DLC that you paid money for. And they're like, yeah, it's 30 bucks. Fuck you very much. It's it's very very frustrating and and you know I played Arkham City, I played Arkham Asylum. You know they put out the Game of the Year edition, dude. I beat the game. I'm done with it. If I to rebuy that game again, even if it's at a, at a discount, you need to give me some real crazy shit. Like yeah, you can play the Harley missions and you can do the Nightwing and Robin and Catwoman whatever, but it's not it's not like they said hey you know you play this. And you'll get the first level of the next Batman game. You know, like they're not giving you something super crazy to make you want to part with the 30 bucks. They're like, oh, yeah, here's all that DLC you might have paid for. Or in this case, I definitely did pay for it. Yes, sir. I know you did, especially with Dead Island, because I know you were, you know, you were you're, you're into that game. That's like your shit. I actually didn't pay for the Rider White because there's no multiplayer on that. And they're like... It really wasn't worth it. Ah, okay. Well, how how do you feel about Capcom's hundred and fifty dollar twenty fifth anniversary box set? You know, Capcom has been going hard to fuck the consumer without Vaseline. Yes, sir. I mean, first, you have the the discs that have the bonus content already on the disc, but you got to pay to unlock it. That's right. 
now you're going to throw all this shit at us that we already have, because guess what? I have all of that shit. I'm like, if you're going to do a $150 game, let's get some games that haven't come out on the PS3 or the PS50. That's what I'm saying. Some freaking Capcom versus SNK 1 and 2. That, oh, that's a good one, too. But let's get some. Let's even get SNK versus Capcom. The shit is that was. I'll, I'll take it. Original Street Fighter. Let's get Street Fighter One for that matter. Yeah, if give us Fighting Street, Street Fighter Two, Street Fighter Alpha, you know, and then give us those other ones. That like, think about it. There's 15 discs. Eleven of them are fucking music. You're pay. You're real. Turn on my PS3 to listen to music. Thank you. Granted, I do have these games, and I can play them on my PS3 because I have them for PS2. But the concept of being able to play that online, yes, I would actually spend the hundred and fifty. If they put Capcom versus SNK one and two on there, and the Street Fighter Alpha games on there, and all of it was online, I'd pay a hundred fifty for that. Dude, I'd take Alpha 1, 2, I'd take Alpha 1, 2, and 3 online by themselves. And then, like I said, for a bonus, throw in EX 1 and 2 in there. You know, you don't have to add multiplayer to those for obvious reasons, but throw them in there. They are part of the, they are part of the Street Fighter universe, you know? But you're giving us the four... You're giving us four games that have already been out. Well, EX, the EX series is in canon, but I'm just saying, like, when you think of, when you look at Street Fighter titles, those got to be in there, you know? And not for nothing, I like some of the characters they had. Garuda, especially. And, 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 and Skullo. Skullo was awesome, dude. Skullo... I'm surprised they didn't they didn't try and do more with Skullo just because he was such an awesome looking character. So was Kyrie. They they had a, a a bunch of great characters that they could have really fucked with and gone crazy with. But again, you know those are those are the things that would give people the incentive. The hundred and fifty dollars, and you're only giving people four games that have recently come out. I kind of feel that it's just a slap in the face. And what you're giving me the animated series? Whoop the fucking do! It wasn't like it was that great. It's not just a slap in the face; it's a cock slap in the face. Yes, it is. It's like I'm slapping you, and then I am dangling my balls on your chin. It's it's it, it's it's crazy, dude. But you know what the funny part is? Capcom has been shocked that like Street Fighter Cross Tekken hasn't been you know selling the way it should have been selling, and it's like. I don't know. Let's see. You put the game out. The game doesn't have all the characters. Then the Vita gets all the characters. Then the game is broken. Then the online is broken. Then you release a patch that breaks the game again. Yeah, and you want me to pay $60 for that. You want me to pay $60 for that. The 11 bits of music is all remixes of Guile's theme. Yes. You know what's funny? DeSova mentioned the Street Fighter movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Here's a here's one. Why don't you put the Street Fighter the movie game in there? Oh. Remember that shit where you could play as like the Shadowloo soldier and fucking Sawada? 
I'd put that festering. That shit was like, that shit was pit fighter with an extra coat of shit on it. Dude, I, I'd put it, but you know what? It's the 25th anniversary of Street Fighter. Why don't you put that shit? You know what I mean? Like, when you're when you're reminiscing about Street Fighter, this is the shit we talk about. We talk about all the old games. Hey, dude, you know, remember at the end of Alpha 1 that Ken and Ryu would fight Bison and Bison was all jacked up? You know, like, all that shit. Like, that's the shit we talk about. Well, put all the games on, on, on disc and basically link them all together. And you have to collect Bison dollars to unlock the other games. Oh, that would be good. Oh, hell yeah. Bison <laughs> bison dollars would be fantastic. Every time you win, you get a little thing and you build Bison dollars and then you unlock the other games. Fuck it, I'd take it. Why not? Seriously, have some fun with it. It is your 25th anniversary. It's 25 years of you recycling the same game with a fresh coat of paint and making us buy it. That's what it is. Not even giving us the shit that we want. Seriously, how many Thank years? You, how many years did it take for those motherfuckers to go from two to three, <laughs> and then from three to four? Dude, I'm thirty. I'm th- I'm gonna be thirty two years old. I bet you we'll see Street Fighter Five when we're forty. Crazy. Ugh. And you know you know they're gonna make that shit. Oh, you know they're gonna do some some real crazy shit. Um. The last two bit of news, you can help me wrap this up. Coming soon reports that Diablo 3 has sold 3.5 million copies within the first 24 hours of release. The new all-time record for the fastest-selling PC game now is held by Diablo 3. It does not include the 1.2 million people who received the game as part of signing up for the World of Warcraft annual pass. Already a total of 4.7 million people have purchased the game on the first day of release. It is the biggest PC game launch ever within the first week the number has already increased to 6.3 million this doesn't include korean internet game rooms where it is the top played game achieving a record share of more than 39 percent now where where you were remember you know you had stated about there being a drought diablo 3 is like the big box equivalent of, of you know for for the pc that's what i meant in terms of there's not, you know, what other game is going to come out and sell 3 million units in 24 hours? I just want to see how many Korean deaths the other three ones are being responsible for. Oh, you know you're going to find a motherfucker just dead with a bowl of kimchi. He's going to be slumped over his fucking head on the keyboard. And they're going to be like, oh, he was dead five days. We thought he was alive. No, motherfucker. He is blue. That nigga's dead. <laughs> Like that, it amuses me that, you know, that whenever they talk about these game deaths, especially in like Korea, they're like, oh, well, we didn't know. And you get discover the guy like three days later because he stinks. And it's not the typical BO internet cafe stink. It's like dead people, zombie stink. Yeah, stink. It's just like, oh shit, he's dead. Fuck. Damn, now we got to stop gameplay for an hour to clean this up. Well, that's what happens. These fuckers, they sit there. They don't go to the bathroom. Their insides rot out because they're drinking, you know, Mountain Dew, washing it down with Red Bull, eating kimchi and fucking shrimp chips. Well, maybe they have the Korean equivalent of balls. Yeah, exactly. They're drinking drinking extra caffeinated shit. Their heart explodes while they're playing it because they're super excited about doing a raid. And it's like, oh, he's dead. I like what De Silva said. De Silva puts in the chat. Nigga, he dead. Who wants lunch? 
<laughs> that's pretty much it, which is terrible to say, but that's exactly what, what goes down. It's like, oh, fuck, he died. Lunch break. No, they're like, they're like he's dead. Who wants his spot? It's fucking five people flock to that fucking computer. Oh, you know it, dude. And then it's like, who gets his gold now that he's dead? <laughs> Oh, my God. You know that's how it is, dude. You know they're scheming on, like, his character and shit. They're like, oh, he was, like, a level 48. All right. <laughs> it's crazy. It is. I'm surprised that I haven't heard of anybody leaving a digital willing testament for their freaking World of Warcraft account. Oh, that'd be awesome. When I die, I leave my level 80 to my wife. May she raid in peace. <laughs> She's like... The fuck! I want some real money. Oh man, that the gold, the, you know, the gold exchanges and all that shit—they kill each other out there for that stuff. Madness. Last bit, last bit of, of gaming news. Check this: GameStop is trying to create their own E3. They're gonna start their first ever consumer expo, August 29th in San Antonio. The event originally used to be open for GameStop employees. And that's where, you know, the annual manager meeting took place. Now, if you get this, if you have a power-up rewards card in $35, you can get a ticket. But if you have enough reward points, you can get in for free. In addition, you have a $100 VIP pass, which gives you four in-depth sessions with some of the biggest names in gaming. Access to VIP-only lines and entrance to the VIP gaming lounge. Now, before, before you say anything about this... Think about the fact that they are still shilling you their stupid rewards program to go to their expo. Can you believe that shit? You still have to sign up for their lame-ass garbage fucking 10% off discount club to to be able to attend their event. I would go to San Antonio, (laughs) find the first hot dog vendor, buy a hot dog, Eat the hot dog without the bun, take the bun, shit in it, and throw it at the expo. Dude, it's it's insane. Like I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, that's cool that they're opening up an expo and it's awesome. But um You know, it's like really you gotta show the power up card plus thirty five dollars to get a ticket to the event. Oh, and it's two days before PAX Prime. <laughs> fucking GameStop, dude. They never cease to amaze me. Never. Yeah, you gotta sign up for our Not shit. To go to our shit. <laughs> Ugh. Watch them try to make it, like, super exclusive, like, E3. Yeah, okay. Fucking GameStop. Gotta break this out for these assholes. Fucking $35. Anything else you need to add, my friend? <laughs> no, I'm good for now. All right, dude. Peace. Peace. All right, ladies and gents, let's talk some movies. Spartans? Spartans! What is your profession? Come on, let's sing the thunder song. All right. When, when you, you hear, hear the sound of thunder, thunder, don't you get too scared. Just grab your thunder buddy and say these magic words. Fuck you, thunder. You can suck my dick. You can't get me thunder because you're just God's fuss. Yeah, I, ha- I had to. I had to break that out. Ted will be out soon. 
and it's it just it's just fucking funny. Anyway, let's talk Avengers. Superhero hype is reporting that the Avengers has set the U.S. box office record by making four hundred million dollars in fourteen days. Come on, let's sing the thunder song. Oh. All right. When, when you, you hear, hear the sound of thunder, thunder don't yep. you? Shouldn't have double clicked my, the mouse with that shit. As much as that's funny, I can't play it more than once. Anyway, as I was saying. The Avengers, $400 million in 14 days. It broke the previous record, which was held by the Dark Knight, which set the record in 18 days. So there you have it. Ridiculous. It's already passed Toy Story 3 and Pirates of the Caribbean to become the sixth highest grossing film of all time. It is also the highest grossing Disney release ever. In addition to that, you guys are going to get a kick out of this. Box Office Mojo reported that besides being the number one movie in America, this is how it stacks up in terms of domestic in terms of domestic in terms of domestic dollars. Number one, Avatar. Number two is Titanic. Three is The Dark Knight. Four is Episode One. Five is The Avengers. This is only domestically. Star Wars. It surpassed Star Wars. Shrek 2, which was number 7, E.T., which was 8, Pirates, and The Lion King. So, you already know, The Avengers is not fucking around. Speaking of which, the box office numbers for this past weekend, The Avengers was number 1, $55 million. Battleshit, and that's what it was, shit, $25.3 million at number 2. The Dictator was number 3. Slick is probably going to have a review for that this weekend. Dark Shadows was four. You can check out our review of Dark Shadows on MyTakeRadio.com. What to Expect When You're Expecting, possibly a colostomy bag, was number five. The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, a.k.a. Cocoon Part 7, was number six. Hunger Games was number seven. Think Like a Man was eight. The Lucky One was nine. Pirates, Band of Misfits, was ten. I had to stop what I was doing... Because De Silva says that Battleship was actually decent. And, wa- and you know he said he watched it today. Please tell me you did not pay legitimate fucking money for that movie. Please type that. Please. If you paid full price for that movie, De Silva, I'm going to have to go to Canada and kick you in the dick. Because there, there should be no reason to pay full price for that movie. None. Anyway, while De Silva gets back to that, I do got to talk about this bit of, um, ah, $12. Fuck you. (laughs) Anyway, let me jump back into this. Ryan Reynolds is, is being tapped as the top choice for a Highlander reboot. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Highlander is getting the reboot treatment. Variety reports that, get this, Reynolds is the front runner for the film, and he will be playing the role of, of course, probably Connor McCloud. Now, the funny thing was, the Highlander movies have always been awesome. They really have. But to reboot that film that it's really not that old, and frankly, you still had the TV series with Alien Paul, I mean, with Alien Paul, with Adrian Paul, I don't know, man. I just, (laughs) don't get me wrong. I mean, another Highlander, as long as I can hear this shit, We'll be all right. Here we are, born to be kings. We're the princes of the universe. As long as I can hear that, we'll be all right. 
I don't give a fuck if you gotta dig up Freddie Mercury from the fucking grave to play this shit. Because that shit got you hype. As soon as you saw Adrian Paul's nicely slick back hair and his pedophile trench coat and his samurai sword, you knew it was on and popping. You knew. Not for nothing. What the fuck has he done since Highlander? Jack shit. And now Ryan Reynolds is going to uh, assume the mantle of being Connor McLeod from the clan McLeod. I, I don't even think he can deliver that line with an ounce of seriousness unless he's a snarky prick about it. Like, like yeah, you know, you fucking, I, I'll cut your head off and I'll absorb your powers. Yeah, that's what I fucking do. I was also Green Lantern. I was also Deadpool. I don't know. I'm funny. Ha ha ha. Like, seriously, like, that's, that's what you would expect with Ryan Reynolds being involved in Highlander. I'm sorry, it is. He just doesn't have that, I'm a legit badass that cuts people's heads off and absorbs their power. And if you want to take it really, really far back, watch the, I believe it was the last Highlander film, where Edge, WWE's Edge, was had a cameo in it. It was Adrian Paul's Highlander and Christopher Lander's Highlander taking on... The guy, the the European, the European bad guy who's like in every cable flick. It was probably one of the love hate worst movies that I've ever watched, and it's a guilty pleasure. I still watch it. I'm just like, holy shit! Every time I watch this, it's just as shitty as the last time. Originally, I that that the the title of shitty Highlander movie went to the one with um, Christopher Lambert and Mario Van Peebles, which um, he played a Mongolian. At the time. Now you got this black guy with jerry curls who is Mongolian. You can't even make this shit up. Mario Van Peebles was Mongolian. How the fuck is that? He doesn't have an ounce of Asian in his body. Much less, much less being Mongolian. And I really felt that that was the the worst one. But then the one came up with with Adrian Paul and, and Christopher Lambert and... My hopes were dashed, and that one took the mantle of worst Highlander flick. But like I said, it's a guilty pleasure. Sometimes it's on cable. I gotta watch the shit. I'm sorry. We all have those films. Don't act like you don't. A couple of months back, I'd say roughly about a year ago, Slick and I watched the Tekken movie for the Minority Film Report. If you've listened to that, you'll realize that we had a lot of negative shit to say about that movie, and... You know, logic would dictate that that movie didn't see a box office release, probably made like $3 in home video, would not deserve a sequel. But, ladies and gents, it is getting one. Um, Basically, The Hollywood Reporter is saying that Stephen Paul, who did Baby Geniuses, is looking to expand this film into franchise status. He is developing Tekken, Rise Rise of the Tournament as part of a franchise of films based on the Tekken games. This particular sequel will be directed by Prakaya Pinkyao, who did um, Ong Bak, and should be getting a domestic release. Now, here's, here's, here's the part of me that, that thinks that this movie can either be real shitty or really, really passable. The guy who produced the first film, which was, eh, kind of shitty created baby geniuses we all know baby geniuses was a festering festering pile of shit festering it was the it was cancer patient shit seriously it was it was garbage it was shit now 
you want to create this other movie, the only thing that gives this film hope is involving the director of Ang Bak because you know he's going to get some awesome fight choreography. But you, but not every film can be gauged on fight choreography because I've seen films with awesome fight scenes and the films are just shit. They're shit. Perfect, perfect example, Ang Bak 2 and Ang Bak 3. Beautiful fighting. Nowhere near the same as the first one. Nowhere near. They were good, but they didn't have that same level of, of, of action and awesomeness that the first one did. I think it's also because Tony Jaa might have, you know, smoked a, little, smoked a little bit of that Thai weed and gotten a little crazy wanting to become a monk and shit, but whatever. I, I really think there's no necessity to do anything with the Tekken franchise in, regarding films, only because they're just never going to be done right. So why why ruin a good franchise? But this isn't even the, 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 the icing on the What the Fuck movie news cake this week. Ladies and gentlemen, a sequel to MacGruber is in the works. Screen Crush reports that director Jorma Tacone is developing a sequel that will star Will Forte. Of course, you know that MacGruber started as a Saturday Night Live sketch, which was turned into a movie, which was complete shit, and didn't even make back its budget. So there you have it, ladies and gents, a sequel to fucking MacGruber. Seriously. Why would you do that? Why? It's it's terrible. It is complete shit that you would even dig up that festering pile of garbage and, and re-release it. Why would you do it? It's, it, it boggles my mind. I really don't understand why they would do that. When you look at a film like MacGruber, you're guaranteed nine times out of ten to just be dumbfounded at how people can really pay money to see that shit in theaters. Because I sure as fuck was. I was like, what the hell, man? Who legitimately paid money for this? Who? I, I couldn't I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand how people legitimately were like, oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna go see MacGruber in the theater. Yeah, kill yourself. That's what you gotta do. You know what I wanna see in the theater? You, a bottle of Drano, and hopefully you killing yourself. That's what I wanna fucking see. A sequel to MacGruber. Fuck you, Hollywood. Fuck you right in your ass. But on a lighter note, they're starting to set up villains for Thor 2, and a lot of rumors are saying that we're going to go with the Enchantress and the Scourge. But um, I really would like to see the Enchantress and Scourge the Executioner. I mean, they, they were used in the Avengers animated series, um, and I already see what DeSilva is talking about in the chat that will be mentioned this week. So calm down, brother, calm down. But yeah, the, Enchant- the Enchantress and Scourge I really would like to see in Thor. Those characters would be awesome. There, there's a there's a really, really geeky part of me that would like to see Beta Ray Bill on the big screen. I think we need to see uh, Horseface Thor. It just needs to happen. And, and Hollywood can do that. So, make it happen, folks. I don't want to see any of these other lame-o villains. The Enchantress, Scourge, possibly Beta Ray Bill, maybe a tie-in to fucking Thanos. Do something. I don't give a shit. But Beta Ray Bill, please, please put that on the big screen. Anyway, Total Film is reporting that Robert Pattinson, fresh off of raping everybody's eye sockets in Twilight, is now rumored to be joining the Hunger Games franchise as the role of in the role of Finnick O'Dare, who is a former tribute and gets dragged into the third quarter quell. It's considered a rumor right now, but 
Pattinson worked with director Francis Lawrence doing Water for Elephants. So you never know. You may be seeing Robert Pattinson in another franchise, that being, of course, the Hunger Games series. So we'll see how that pans out. What the fuck else is he going to do? What is he, what, what are he and Llama Face going to do once these movies are over? Really? The guy, Llama Face was considered to be Stretch Armstrong at one point. They were going to do that movie. So if you see Abduction, you'll realize that he is just shit in anything else he does. Put him in these little teen-friendly movies and leave him there. And of course, the last bit of movie news to wrap things up, G.I. Joe Retaliation being moved a full nine months into 2013, March 29th. Uh, Paramount is stating that they're citing 3D conversion as the reason. Hasbro president Brian Goldner stated, It's increasingly evident that 3D resonates with moviegoers. Globally and together with Paramount, we made the decision to bring fans an even more immersive entertainment experience. Now, some people are saying that they wanted to do expanded scenes with Duke, because Channing Tatum, you know, he's kind of popular, so they wanted to do more stuff with Duke. Some people are saying it's because they're trying to erase the stench of Battleship, which is in, in theaters just sucking ass. And then the other part is saying that they didn't want to have that movie in theaters and then have it end up competing against Spider-Man, which was going to come out later on in July. And also you still had uh, The Dark Knight as well. So I can understand the logic, but it just felt really, really strange that you would wait basically almost practically a month to pull the plug and move it into March. I honestly think there's more than meets the eye to it. Maybe they want to do the 3D, and frankly, at this point, when you add 3D and post-production to a film, most times it just doesn't work. I mean, if they're doing real D 3D and they're filming some stuff to to work with the movie, maybe. But based on the trailers and based on what I saw, G.I. Joe looked like it was going to be a movie that was going to make a fuckload of money. It was going to put The Rock on the map again as a leading man. But there is one thing that got my attention. You notice how they moved this to March 29th, 2013, right around the time WrestleMania comes around. Just just something I would I would toss out there, you know, a little food for thought. So, you know, maybe they're going to do a little tie-in with that stuff and WrestleMania and The Rock. So that may be another reason that they're doing it just to capitalize on that promotion from the WWE. Who the fuck knows? I think it's kind of bullshit, but who am I? I'm just a schmuck behind a mic. Anyway, ladies and gents, that's going to wrap it up for this week. We got some really great music taking us out. Um, But let's just do all the regular stuff first. You've just heard My Take Radio episode 140 for Thursday, March 24th, 2012. If you have any questions, concerns, or would like to be a guest on a future episode of MTR, you can email me, mtrhost at mytakeradio.com. You can also call our feedback line for the same thing if you have questions, concerns, or just to give some feedback, 347-815-0687, 347-815-0MTR. If you're on any social media networks, you can follow us on Twitter at MyTakeRadio. Look for us on MySpace, become a fan on Facebook, add us on FormSpring and ask us questions. Of course, add us to your circles on Google+. And lastly, but not least, you can also follow our pin boards on Pinterest, which you can get the link for that by heading to MyTakeRadio.com and clicking the Pinterest button. Of course, you can also listen to MTR on your mobile devices using the MyTakeRadio app. It is $1.99. It's cheaper than a cup of coffee. 
gives you access to 96K stereo episodes of MTR. You'll also get access to exclusive programming, wallpapers for your mobile device, and a ton of other stuff that we're loading onto the app. You can pick that up either in the Amazon Android Marketplace or via iTunes for your iPad, iPhone, or, of course, your iPod. If you want to save some money and be cheap, you can always listen to MTR via Blog Talk Radio shitty feed. You can subscribe via iTunes, Zoom Marketplace, Blueberry, and, of course, Stitcher, which, if you enter my take in the promo code, you will be eligible to win $100, as we said at at the top of most broadcasts, $100 courtesy of Stitcher and MTR. Taking us out this week is uh, music from a buddy of mine, uh, Mike Spera. He is in a band called Pulling Punches. And the song that will be taking us out this week is... Uh, what the hell is the name? I'm all fucked up, guys. Please give me one second. Because, of course, nothing. Nothing wants to work when I want to wrap things up. Ah. Uh... Yeah, I'm an asshole. I'm sorry, folks. Anyway, Pulling Punches is taking us out. Their track is Too Little Too Late. You can go to pullingpunches.bandcamp.com to get all their information about the songs there. Again, pullingpunches.bandcamp.com. You'll see that in the show notes. You can also follow them on Twitter and also look for them on Facebook. If you're going to look for them on Twitter, it's at Pulling Punches altogether. Facebook.com Pulling Punches as well. And if you're local, you can check them out in Jersey. They'll be doing a Battle of the Bands. Um, The information for that will also be in the show notes, and I will post the Facebook event link. But they'll also be performing at the Trocadero Balcony in Chinatown in Philadelphia, June 3rd. They'll be performing along with Mean Streets, The Dividend, uh, excuse me, The Dividend, The Divided, and Andrew Winter. That particular event, it's uh, 21 and over, the door opens at 8 and it's $8. Um, the other Battle of the Bands event, that's open to the public. It's, uh, I believe it's at a church in Ocean City, but I will post the details for that. So, ladies and gents, Pulling Punches is taking us out. Too little, too late. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you guys next week. As always, peace.